given all that's going on in the Middle East, all that's going on in Israel and the territories of Palestine. And um, I don't know about you, but um, that's been top of mind over the past week. Uh, Obviously, the news is covering it day after day, really hour by hour. And um, Christians are being put in position of having to think through, how do I pray? You know, what should inform and guide my prayers? How should I view the conflict in the Middle East? Uh, Does the Bible speak to it? Does the Bible not speak to it? In fact, this past week, I heard um, two questions or two statements that gave me a little bit of pause. The first came from one of our own kids, one of our own students here at the church, and they heard at their school that, quote, Muslims are taking the land that Jesus promised to the Christians. Muslims are taking the land that Jesus promised to the Christians. And my own precious mother, my sweet godly mother, who I talk about with regularity, she asked me, and I'm going to quote her. I asked her if I could quote her. I actually asked her for the quote, not that I could quote her. But um, <laughs> if she's watching this, she'll figure it out. She said, quote, David, since the Jews are God's chosen people, how distressed must God be with what's going on in the Middle East? So both comments, one from a child, one deep from a mother's heart, mirror the concern and the confusion that many have regarding what's happening in Israel and the areas of Palestine today. But really, those questions, they're just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to matters like this. Questions like, did Jesus ever promise the land of Israel to Christians to begin with? Is that true? How should Christians view the ongoing conflict between Israel and Palestine? Or as one very popular Christian website put it, it's a website that I like to look at from time to time. It's a website called Got Questions, and it came up on my feed a couple days ago, and the entire video was titled, Should Christians Support the State of Israel? This is what their answer, and I will quote. Christians should definitely support the state of Israel. We must remember that Israel, the nation, is very special to God. I would agree, and and the background, the, the theological tradition of this denomination would absolutely agree wholeheartedly that Israel is special to God. But is the Israel who is so special to God's heart the same as the state of Israel in the Middle East? We're going to think about that today. If you don't agree, please don't beat me up after the sermon. Um, but I want us to think about this. Like, so uh, when you live in an area like ours where you have tremendous evangelical churches, like churches that love Jesus, Churches like Watermark and Northwest Bible that are our brothers and sisters in Christ and they are just our best friends. But maybe on an issue like this, there could be a disagreement. Sometimes even sharp disagreements. And I don't want there to be sharp disagreements, but we want to do the best we can to help us as God's people think about this 
from a biblical standpoint. Everyone's concerned about what's going on over there. There is a humanitarian crisis beyond description going on right now in the Gaza Strip. Millions of people are being displaced from their homes. Can you imagine what that would be like if someone came in and told you to leave even for your own good and you had no place to go and you had brand new babies and you didn't have enough food and, you know, there were no working banks. Like, what would you do? We need to pray for peace. We need to pray for God's grace for all involved. And actually, I think our topic this morning, our passage this morning, is a fantastic jumping off place to talk about this, to think about this. The book of Judges really can be a springboard to give us shape and frame for how to think about this. Uh, I think by studying Gideon's situation a little bit, it will give light to our own. With that in mind, please stand for the reading of God's word. This morning in God's providence, we find ourselves in Judges chapter 7, verses 1 through 14. We will not be looking at the back panels today. We're just going to be focused on verses 1 through 14. Remember, beloved, these are the very written words of God. So this is part two. Last week, we we looked at Judges 6 and Gideon from Judges 6. This week, we continue the story. Early in the morning, Jeroboam... That is Gideon, you know, they had given Gideon a nickname or a new name after he tore down this idol. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Morah. The Lord said to Gideon, Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands, or this is key, or Israel would boast against me. Editorial note, they would say in their hearts the following, my own strength has saved me. If I let them go in with this large number of forces and they win, they would take credit for the victory. Verse three, now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. Okay, that was a very gracious thing to do. If you're not confident about this, if you're frightened of battle, you can go home and you won't be penalized. Okay, it says, so 22,000 men left while 10,000 remained. Wow, two-thirds just gone. But the Lord said to Gideon, well, there are still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will thin them out for you there. If I say, this one shall go with you, then he'll go with you. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go with you. So the Lord was going to set up this kind of criteria for who would go with Gideon and who would not go with Gideon. And it's a little confusing on the surface but we'll explain it. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, I want you to separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps uh, from those. I want you to separate those people out from those who kneel down to drink. We'll, We'll explain that more in a minute. 
300 of the men drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took, other, who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Now, the scene shifts. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During the night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down to that camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. If you are afraid to attack, which of course Gideon's always afraid, if you are afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they, the Midianites, are saying. Afterward, you will be encouraged to attack the camp. So if you remember last week, Gideon is just plagued by fear. He needs sign after sign after sign to encourage him to move forward. And here God knows he's afraid again and graciously accommodates Gideon's concerns. Verse 12, the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley thick as locusts. Their camels could, not be, could no more be counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived, you know, at the outskirts of their camp just as a man was telling his friend his dream. He said to his friend, I had a dream. He was saying, quote, a round loaf of barley bread. So this very small, insignificant thing. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such a force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. Indeed, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever, and may he add his blessing to it. You may be seated. Okay, this story reminds me a little bit of, of a, I guess you could call it a challenge that went down back in 2014. You know, my favorite illustrations flow from the sport of tennis. And so I was recently reminded of there was a sports commentator back in 2014 who was watching some pro tennis tournaments. And it may have been Roger Federer or someone else beat another player in a Grand Slam tournament, like 6-0, 6-0, 6-0, which is like almost unheard of with players of that caliber. And so this commentator was like in shock and disbelief. He was like, how could another pro player lose a match and not win a game? He said, even I could win a game against a Turing pro, okay, in one of these tournaments. I could do it. How could this night guy not do it? Well, the great American champion, Andy Roddick, if you remember that name, he retired a few years ago. Andy Roddick heard about this. So he calls the guy on the radio show and he says, not only could you not get a game on me if we played a real match, I can beat you with a frying pan, okay? 
And the guy was like, there's no way, because this guy was a lefty and he played a little tennis, no way you can beat me with a frying pan. And he's like, this is like playing with my arm tied behind my back. It's on YouTube. Andy Roddick beat the guy with a frying pan, okay? Demonstrating just how great, how great these players are. So in a sense, the Lord was defeating Midian with a frying pan, okay? He starts with 32,000 people, okay? Gideon has 32,000 people to fight against the Midianites, and what does the Lord say in the text explicitly? That's too many men. If I lead you to victory with 32,000 men, you will say in your hearts, look at what we did. Look how great we are. You'll take credit for the victory. So the first uh, thinning, he says, if you remember, he says, any of you who are afraid, feel free to go home, no penalty. How many left? 22,000 left, leaving 10,000. Then he does another thinning. He says, okay, I want you to go drink the water. And so the men who go and lap the water like a dog, like they would stick their faces like down to the water and lick like a dog would lick, that group is going to be differentiated from those who like pool the water in their mouth and drink from there. And the Lord said, I want the people who lap the water up like a dog. They're the ones who will stay. There were 300 of them. Okay, and then the larger group held the water with their hands and they drank from there. Why did the Lord do that, do you think? How would that further give the glory to God? How did that test distinguish between like experienced, capable soldiers from the more inexperienced? Well, the experienced soldiers would go down there and they would keep their head up and they would take the water and they would drink from it, and they were always alert. The 300 clueless soldiers would just like drink it and have no idea what was going on. So we go from 32,000 good soldiers to 300 also rans, and the Lord was going to use that to deal with Gideon. But if that wasn't enough, God anticipates that Gideon is going to be afraid. He's going to be frightened. He may not go. So he says, I'm going to do this for you. Go down to that camp and be nearby and tell me what you hear. He overhears one Midianite saying to another Midianite that I had a dream last night that this small little loaf of barley bread tumbled through the Midianite camp and destroyed it. Obviously, the little bread little bread bundle symbolized the 300 men and that God was going to use something tiny, something small, something insignificant to deliver the victory, to reinforce the idea of what? We've seen this week after week. What is the idea here in the book of Judges? Israel sins. They get themselves into a very bad way and God sends them an unlikely judge, an unlikely deliverer to deliver them, okay, because they can't deliver themselves, and he uses unlikely judges that should have no business delivering anybody from anything to highlight, I'm your deliverer. I am the great judge with a capital J. I'm the one who delivers you. Don't trust in yourself. Trust in me. 
And ultimately, we know that in Christ, God delivered to his people the judge, the Messiah, the deliverer, who did for us what we cannot do for ourselves. It's amazing to see how all the parts of the Bible relate back to the whole, how they all focus and fix on Jesus Christ. You can't do it. Your quiet times can't do it. Your personal integrity can't do it. Only the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ can make you clean. That's why we say this, you know, that there's a condition to the covenant. There's a seal promised on baptism, okay? It's a guarantee that if, if the condition of the covenant is met, if these children trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, they'll be saved. That's reinforced in this passage. Okay, I want to transition, I want to pivot briefly, and I want to relate this passage to what's going on today. What was going on in the book of Judges? So if in the book of Joshua, the book of Joshua is about the conquest of the land under whom? You know it, under Joshua. And they engage in the conquest. But by the end of the book of Joshua, the land wasn't fully possessed and occupied. So in the book of Judges, the land gets fully possessed, defended, and occupied. That land. How does that land and that Israel relate now to Palestine, okay, and Israel today? Should the church be waiting for God to raise up another Gideon to clear out that land and give it back to the nation of Israel? Is that relevant today? Or is that not relevant today? How should we pray for this area of the world and this land? And I think I can help us think this through with just three scripture verses to help frame our thinking to help us understand maybe how to better pray the first one I'm going to tell you the end and then I'll back up a little bit the end is the church of the living God today composed of Jew and Gentile we are Israel Israel expanded after Acts 2 and incorporated Gentiles as well as Jews to become the true Israel, the fullness of Israel. One of my professors would always say, his name's Dr. John Currid, one of the best Old Testament professors I've ever seen. We have the privilege of actually having him here in Dallas to teach some classes at RTS here in Dallas. He would always say to us, he would drill this into our brains, the Bible, especially the New Covenant, it is not about a dusty land in Palestine. That was the concern of God's people in the Old Covenant. It was all about going to that land. Now, in the New Covenant, we're going to another land. We're going to the new heavens and the new earth. So just, you know, take a sip of your coffee so very briefly. You know when Israel and the church started? Do you know when it started? It started in the Garden of Eden. That was the first land. 
That's the first land that God's people occupied where they walked with him in the cool of the day and endured and experienced perfect fellowship and then due to sin they were cast out. And then God gives them a new land where he would give them rest to teach and to anticipate pedagogically the real fulfillment of the promise, which is the new heavens and the new earth. So in the same way that no one wants to go back to the Garden of Eden, in the new covenant, no one should want to go back to the dusty land in Palestine. Our focus is forward, whose architect and builder is God in the new heavens and the new earth. And so God's people are not located in what we might call Canaan, ancient land of Israel, Palestine. Israel now is all over the world, a spiritual people, a church. Listen to this verse from Romans 4.13. As Abraham, I'm sorry, as Paul interprets the true depth and intention of the Abrahamic promise when they're promised land. Just listen. This is mind-blowing. It's an interpretive key to help us what was going on in Paul's mind. How did Paul view the land promises? Paul writes in Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. Let me read that again. That is transformative. That is instrumental. That is a lens we should view these old covenant promises through where he says the promise to Abraham and his offspring was that he would be heir of the world. Hence, Dr. Currid's statement. It's not about a dusty little land in Palestine. I mean, that was just temporary. That was a foreshadowing of the new heavens and the new earth, a creation so wonderful, so glorious, we can't even begin to imagine it as the people of God. When Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, he said, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and, in fact, is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It was moving away from geography, from location. It was going to be all over the world. In Galatians 6, 16, he calls Jews and Gentiles alike the Israel of God. That is who the church is. Okay. So what that means is the state of Israel in the Middle East, that is a, that is a political, geopolitical nation that has no, no, no bearing, no relationship to God's future program, the state of Israel. Why is that the case? The people of God, Jew and Gentile alike, we are Israel. According to Romans 11, there is a tree. We as Gentiles, these wild olive branches, were grafted in. There's not two trees, there's one tree. Okay, in the book of Galatians, God said he has made one new man out of the two. And so we as the people of God should have great concern for humanitarian crisis, crises that happen anywhere in the world. 
The kind of suffering that is happening there, I can't even imagine. And we should be praying for those people, Jew and Palestinian alike. We need to pray for order to come to that land. We need to pray for the gospel of Jesus Christ to come to that land because just dividing the land up among them is not going to bring peace. There's only one thing that can bring peace. There's only one thing that can bring the most intense of enemies together. And that is the true judge, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be praying that the Holy Spirit of the living God would wash over that place and draw Arabs and Jews to the Lord Jesus Christ the heir of the Abrahamic promises. That should be our prayer. The vision and aim of the gospel is so much bigger than that little land. It's about a whole renewed creation. And so, Lord willing, this week, we can all be praying for the governments of the world, the state of Israel, the United States, the Palestinians, Lord, give them wisdom. Give them understanding what Satan would, would, would design to wreak havoc in our world, which he's doing. Holy Spirit, actually use it to draw people to the only true hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that is our hope and that is our focus. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, we do thank you for... Your Bible, we do thank you for how all the parts relate to the whole. We thank you how every single word, every single verse, every single book culminates in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Gideon, the better Gideon, the one who rescued us from a dominion far worse than the oppression of the Midianites. We thank you for Jesus who delivered us from sin's grip and oppression, and we thank you, Heavenly Father, that he didn't deliver us just to occupy a dusty little land in Palestine. We look forward to the day that we will enjoy the beauty and the wonder and the consummation of all of these land promises that come together in the new Canaan, the new heavens, and the new earth, will, where we will love you, and relate to you in the cool of the day, as it were, with your people under the kingship of Jesus forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we do pray for that area of the world. We pray for the Jews. We pray for the Palestinians. We pray that they would see that hope is not born from political compromise, that hope is truly born from trusting in your provision, your Messiah, the one you've provided for the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. In his matchless name we pray.